All right, if you've got a Bible with you, I invite you to find Daniel chapter 4. We've been in this series. We're calling this Faith in the Real World. Uh, we always make Bibles available at our Connection Center, and usually there's some up here at the front. If you want, you can always help yourself. And I put the page number up there usually, and uh, it's going to be page 728. And just to give you the background, we're talking about uh, events that happened about 2,600 years ago, roughly. And we're, we're in the, we're in a faraway place called Babylon. In fact, uh, Ed, let's just go to that next slide. We're dealing with a, with a group of people, the Israelites, who had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire under the leadership of a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. And he had conquered Jerusalem. And he'd been there actually three times and, and finally completely uh, besieged and uh, destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But God was really using him in a way to preserve some things. He carted off all the precious uh, items from the temple, took them back to, to Babylon without realizing it. God was using him as a sort of a safe safety deposit box for God's special items. So the temple was destroyed. And some uh, of the Hebrews were brought to Babylon. They were put in exile. And this book of Daniel is all about that. You can also read more about that in, uh, well, the book of Nehemiah kind of talks about how they came back 70 years later. Some of the prophets deal with that too. So we're in the Old Testament. The book of Daniel is, is not a long book and we're only in the first uh, been six chapters in this series, but we're today we're in chapter four. And I'll do my best to uh, read and summarize. It's a long passage, but Uh, Follow along with me, uh, beginning in verse 1. Daniel 4, verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. Okay, so we're clear this is a letter he's sending out to every all his subjects uh, around the known world. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. Verse 7, when all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. At last, Daniel came in before me, and I told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. What happened when these people were relocated, they'd be kind of completely immersed into a new culture, and part of the way you sort of re-indoctrinate someone is give them a new name, and so that's part of what the Babylonians had done, and even just kind of erased their past identity. So they even had new names, Belteshazzar, but we'll call him Daniel. Verse 9 says, I said to him, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. While I was lying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong and reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shades and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from this tree. And then as I lay there dreaming, verse 13, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And the messenger shouted, cut down the tree and lop off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit, chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. 
And let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones so that everyone may know that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. Verse 18, I, Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So King Nebuchadnezzar has kind of a limited understanding, but he has, a, he has a deep desire for things of the spirit. He wants to know the truth. He's been frightened by this dream, and Daniel now has the opportunity to interpret. Now, there's some elements of this dream that are already understandable to Daniel. For the Hebrew people, that image of the tree is as a familiar image, it represents a person. That's not uncommon. Psalm 1 says that the, the righteous person is like a tree that's planted by the water. And so there are other times that the tree represents a person. So not that's not a big stretch for Daniel at this point. But it's a frightening dream because it's talking about this very prosperous, successful tree. And now it's going to be chopped down and, and uh, limited just to a stump. And so verse 19, it says, Upon hearing this, Daniel, uh, known as Belteshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. And the king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. And he replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, and not to you. The tree you saw growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. Um, uh, and it had fresh leaves. And he goes, verse 22, he says, that tree, your majesty, verse 22, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to the heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. And so then Daniel just unpacks the dream. And it's all about Nebuchadnezzar and, and kind of a messenger from God is going to cut, cut him down and reduce him. And to the point where he's going to be limited, he's going to kind of go wild for, for seven. All we're given is seven periods of time. But most commentators and people who study this stuff and look at the, the timeline, the actual historical timeline from Babylon, seven years kind of makes sense. He sort of, um, Nebuchadnezzar kind of disappears out of history for a little while and then comes back. So seven years uh, makes sense uh, for what happened. And let me take you all the way to verse 27. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. Verse 28. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And as he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Now, Babylon is known in history as one of the great wonders of the world. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon is expansive and unbelievable engineering feats. And verse 31 says, while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And then verse 34, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. 
and my sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. Then he sings a psalm of praise to God. And then uh, he says, uh, verse 35, all the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases. Uh, No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? And verse 36, when my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true and he is able to humble the proud. Wow. It's a remarkable account. I, in fact, I would say this account of, of all these things you've just heard, the dream, the interpretation, and of course the king's descent into madness and his return to sanity are an example of historical narrative shared with, I would say, literary purity. So last week we talked about some parts of the Bible are historical Narrative, it's storytelling of true events. And this one is so clean, it's such a clean example of this, that there are just, besides the, a brief reference to the other kind of advisors and, you know, astrologers and so on that he leans in, there's really just three actors in this story. There's God, there's the king, and there's Daniel, the messenger. So I want to kind of unpack these three actors just a little bit. Uh, the king, the messenger, and of course... God Almighty. So if you're following into the, your outline today, you can fill those in and I'll add some, you can add some little notes as we go. Now, this book, the Bible, what we call scripture, uh, including the Old Testament, the portion that we're in, is meant to equip you and me in our faith, right? To, to help us with a better understanding of God, to, to give us a clear understanding of his plan of salvation and, and what our part is in God's plan. And there's, there's a lot more going on here than just a report about King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and all these things that happened. This very episode is meant to empower. It's to equip you and me in our, in our life as followers of Jesus and servants of the Most High God. And so that's why I want to unpack these three actors a little bit. First, what do we discover about God in this account? Well, most importantly, you see that God is sovereign, uh, the Almighty One. Verse 32 uh, records it this way. This is God speaking. He says, you will be driven from human society. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. God is sovereign. He's supreme. He's the ultimate. And, and he, he has more power than anyone. He has the ultimate power and authority. Now, you might think, you look, kind of hear the story and you're thinking, ah, it seems like God's being a little bit petty. I mean, is God threatened by Nebuchadnezzar? Is that what's happening here? It's like, oh man, that guy's getting a little big for his britches. I better like knock him down a little. I you know, wouldn't want people to like, you know, get the wrong idea. No. You might think, well, God just doesn't want to be challenged. You know, who cares if this king has this runaway ego? Why? What's the big deal? Why does it matter? Well, here's why it matters. When we forget God in our life, when we're too proud to submit to God, we're likely to mistreat others. People who are proud and arrogant have a hard time treating other people well. So the king not only wrongfully took credit for his success, right? So he's stealing the glory of God rather than say, wow, God, you have, you have made me successful. 
He believed that he could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, to whomever he wanted. Remember we talked about this sort of tearing people limb from limb. He just loved to threaten people. He's going to destroy them and cut them down and destroy their houses and stuff. This is a deadly example of the corruption of power. God is actually doing the king and the subjects of his kingdom a great favor by humbling him. God's actually doing him a favor and doing his subjects a favor because when we bow down and we properly elevate God, when we put ourselves in a proper place in relation to God, what happens is we tend to lift other people up as well in the process. When we lift ourselves up above God, we tend to step on other people to get there. We really do. So I'm going to be great, but I'm going to have to step on other people to get there. But what happens the other way? I humble myself and it tends to lift other people up. That's what we're going for here. And so God's doing him a favor. When we don't submit, honestly, we become terrible human beings. Really. Um, and, and it's true in some of the most mundane ways. I, I think you may have had at some point a supervisor, a teacher, a authority figure in your life of some kind who just thought the world revolved around them, maybe a, a prof in university or um, boss in your in your working world, and uh, they just think the world revolves around them. And that person just can make your life misery, can't they? It's like, oh, there's kind of they're so great and they push you down so much. And well, it's their pride that keeps them from submitting to the Almighty. And as they do that, it's crushing to other people. Now, there's good news. And the good news is in the way that God confronts Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's how God reveals himself. That's amazing. God showed his compassion and his patience. First, he warns Nebuchadnezzar with a dream. Then he sends Daniel along to, to warn him and call him like, hey, watch out, king. Please stop doing this. Right? He does that. And then finally, he delays a full year before doing what he says he's going to do. Twelve months, God waits for Nebuchadnezzar to come around. So God is being very patient, very kind with him. And uh, God, you know, we would say he acted slowly. And then once Nebuchadnezzar, this is so amazing, once Nebuchadnezzar does kind of confess his sins and comes back to his senses, he doesn't say, see, I told you I was great. No, he then submits himself to God. And what does God do? God lifts him back up. God doesn't hold a grudge. God doesn't say, you missed your chance. You blew it. You're a mess. God says, oh, no problem. And God elevates him back up even to a higher position than before. God holds no grudges. And I think this matters for us in this way, that we want, we want to give people around us an accurate picture of God. We want them to see who God truly is in his, you know, the whole breadth of, of who God is. Because if we only dwell on the judgment of God, you know, God's going to get you, your sin's going to get you in trouble, you're going to get destroyed for that. If we only do that, and we never proclaim his patience, his graciousness, his kindness, his generosity, his love, his forgiveness... If we only portray the judgment side, we paint a very dark, unwelcoming picture. We make the good news into bad news. And yet if we only talk about the love of God and, and never the justice, and we, we, we avoid sort of the holiness of God and the sovereignty of God, then we pre- present sort of a faith that's nice, but kind of unnecessary. Kind of a nice option, but means nothing. So you've got to have both of these qualities or these both sides kind of intention because God is sovereign. He will not be usurped. And yet God is gracious and he's he's reaching out even to those 
who, like Nebuchadnezzar, worship themselves, which is really what Nebuchadnezzar does. So God is both justice and God is mercy. He, he will forgive and he will lift up those who humble themselves. The Bible has multiple references to this. As we humble ourselves, God elevates us. We humble ourselves to God and he picks us up. And it should be obvious, of course, that, that pride and arrogance are a guaranteed disaster. I've got a little thing put on the screen here. You could say it this way. The surest way to the bottom is to push ourselves to the top. Surest way to the bottom is to push ourselves to the top. You've seen this. Jesus warned about this. You've seen it in your life around you. And that was the king's story. The more he pushed himself to the top, the more certainly he would go to the bottom. And yet, here's also what's so remarkable. Nebuchadnezzar's life and his story, his testimony demonstrates that people can change. People can change. Those really difficult people in your life, they can actually change. That that is possible. They're not unreachable. And, and as you think about that impossible coworker right now or that neighbor who's just so difficult, they are not beyond the reach of God's grace. But it's going to take humility on their part to get there. So that's an amazing thing about Nebuchadnezzar. What about Daniel? Well, Daniel had this unique opportunity because he's got this boss, the king, right, who had taken him from his family, from his homeland, taken his freedom, nearly killed him at least once, more than that, and his friends. Uh, if you were here last week, you heard out the story about his friends who got thrown into this blazing furnace and should have died and they didn't. And there's been other times like that and, and there will be more, right? This king had it coming. And Daniel had the opportunity to just just stick it to him. Like, just gloat. Like, just like, oh, king. <laughs> Let me tell you, king. You are finally going to get what you deserve. <laughs> I, for one, can hardly wait. I am really looking forward to this, king, because you have made my life pretty miserable. And now the tables are going to turn. So just, you know, just warning you, that's what's coming. I mean, yuck, Nebuchadnezzar is a madman, but what if Daniel had held a grudge? I don't know if you've ever wished somebody dead, or maybe not that strongly. Maybe you just fantasized about your arch enemy just really getting what they deserve. Just like, just suffering, even a little, right? Maybe your ex or your boss or your abuser or the person who ripped you off for thousands of dollars and you think about them and you just go... I scared, just, uh, I was just, mm, God, just, mm, just, mm, like, uh, just, you know, I'm, I mean, not, not from me personally, but God, if you would just, just like put your foot out, God, and let's just trip him a little. Like, just, just do something like that, God. Like, I'd be happy with a flat tire, God, just anything, right? Well, I, I understand, but that doesn't help. Anything. And thankfully, we've got Daniel to mentor us on this. So instead of saying, well, King, you're finally going to get what you should have gotten long ago. He says this, verse 27. We've got this one on screen. He puts it this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is Daniel speaking. Please accept my advice. 
Stop sinning and do what's right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. That's Daniel bringing him good news, calling him to repent, inviting him to turn his life around. And and just as an aside, one consistent test of our own humility before God is our attitude toward the poor. Mercy for the poor is a product of faith in Christ. It's always been Christians who have led the way most effectively in caring for the poor. Organizations like Salvation Army and Rescue Mission and, and on and on. It's Christians who drive that in the most effective ways. Because this, quite simply, a rescued heart cares for other people. A rescued heart cares for other people. When you understand the grace that you've received, you can't help but want others to experience that as well, no matter who they are or what they've done. A rescued heart cares for other people. And that's a good test even in your own heart to say, How do, I, do I care about people? And if not, God, I, I need to have you do some work in my own heart. So Daniel's just the messenger, but the character, we realize now, that of the character of the messenger matters. How you present the gospel, the good news message of Jesus matters. How you live your life as a representative of Jesus Christ matters. Don't say, well, I'll just keep quiet to myself. Nobody needs to know that I'm a Christian. Look, we've established this a couple of weeks ago. People know your faith is public, whether you realize it or not, whether you want it to be or not. It's out there. And I want you to notice that Daniel's approach made the good news good news. He made the good news good. And he warned about judgment. Yes, and he, he called Nebuchadnezzar out on a sin and he, he invited him to repent, but he invited him to repentance. Why? So that he could prosper. So that he could experience God's favor in his life. That's what he's doing here. Nebuchadnezzar, I just, I want things to go well for you. Maybe Daniel was wasting his time. It kind of seems that way because after all, Nebuchadnezzar didn't repent until he did go through the humiliation, the seven years of insanity and all that. He, he felt, Nebuchadnezzar felt the pain Finally, even though he didn't really listen to Daniel, but he felt the pain. He came to what step two in, in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous says, puts it this way, that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He is in a place of insanity and he recognizes, I cannot pull myself up out of this mess. I cannot. I'm in the grass. There's, I, I, there must have just been a moment of clarity. He's eating grass like a cow. This is called boanthropy, by the way. It's an actual term. Bovine anthropy for man. Right? There he is. He's eating grass. And then there's a moment of clarity. He goes, I'm eating grass. <laughs> this may not be normal. And at that moment, he... He looks up to heaven. He finally recognizes what's happened. That's quite a character, right? We're going to take some pointers from Daniel in a moment, but I I do want to make a comment about the seven years of insanity, what New Living calls insanity. In today's terms, we we would put that in the category of mental health and mental illness. People that you love suffer... Everybody, but people that you know, you know people 
who suffer from some varying degrees of depression, anxiety, uh, disassociative disorders of whatever kinds, hopefully not boanthropy. Right. And I think kind of the stigma around mental illness is lifting, I hope, although every time we hear uh, of, a, of a, someone ending their own life, losing their life to depression, um, it shocks us and it should and it, it breaks our heart. We think, wow. There's always people around those people who are surprised when that happens. Um, so while stigma is lifting, I think we still need to give people help in talking about it. If you've got people in your life who are struggling in some way, you, be, be compassionate, be tender about it. Um, you know, I haven't even always been. It's something that's hard to understand when you haven't struggled with one of these things. It's hard to grasp, but it's real. And look, a good therapist can help. Medication might be necessary. But I don't want you to miss this turning point for the king in verse 34. There's a turning point here, and I think this is part of anyone's recovery. And I think even the starting point of recovery. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, sorry, can we go to the uh, next one? I think I might have made a mistake. I'll read it. Verse 34 says this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. And my sanity returned. And I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. So an important piece, I'm not saying it's all of it, a piece of mental health includes lifting your eyes to heaven and giving praise to the Most High God. And if you're struggling, friend, if you're struggling today, depression, anxiety, other disorders, start there. But I want you to reach out to a trusted friend, your small group, a pastor, a therapist, somebody who can help you begin to unpack what you're experiencing. Because if you are feeling in a place of low where you just have a hard time getting out of bed every day, I want you to know you don't need to keep living like that. If you find that you're just anxious all the time, that you don't need to continue like that, there's there's help for you. Start at this place, lifting your eyes to heaven. But reach out. Let people help you. Let's steer you to, to places where you can get help. Now, there are some priceless lessons to learn from Daniel, and I, I want to finish up with these. He was a faithful messenger of God's good news of salvation, and uh, and you and I could be too. And so there's three, three qualities in his approach I, I want to kind of finish with here today. And uh, I would say it this way. You're a ready messenger if. You're a ready messenger if judgment disturbs you. If judgment disturbs you. So verse 19, the first part of 19 says, Upon hearing this, Daniel, so hearing what would happen, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. He was deeply disturbed by this dream. And it wasn't what was happening to him. It was what was going to happen. It was the judgment that was coming to Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel's whole life, right, had been stolen away from him and upended by the king. And, and, and we know the king deserved, look, the king deserved much worse than what God was going to put him. He deserved a terrible death. And yet here's Daniel overcome and frightened by it. And when you see friends or family members who 
who have rejected God and they're destined for an eternity apart from God and, and they're suffering the consequences of living a life of, of pride and rebellion apart from God. I want you to think about how you feel. If that doesn't bother you, you need to say, God, I need you to give me a heart that's disturbed by judgment. It should bug me that someone else is going to suffer the judgment of God. People apart from God have a, have a dreadful future, and we cannot be just okay with that. So a ready messenger doesn't want others to stay there. Secondly, you're a ready messenger if compassion compels you. In the second part of verse 19, uh, he says, Belteshazzar replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my Lord, and not to you. Not that Daniel would have been the kind of guy to want this to happen to anyone, but it's a, it's a figure of speech. King, I do not want this to, to be on you. And my hope for you in this year of 2018 is that, is that, you know, at least one person in your life, in your circle, in your sphere, gets to hear your story about how you follow Jesus and why you follow Jesus. That would be my hope. That that would, that you would be able to pursue that. But I don't want that to happen out of guilt. I don't want that out of obligation or duty. The engine driving making Jesus known, as Pastor Stephen talked about, is compassion. We actually care about people. We don't want them to suffer. Right? So we're motivated. I had an interesting encounter this week. I was sitting at the Starbucks uh, doing some prep for this. And there was a couple in their 70s. And one of those, you know, sometimes at Starbucks, they got the long table where you sit. And then you kind of share space. And they were there. And they were having some computer problems. They were trying to get online. And... So I thought I'd be a, you know, a hero, a good Samaritan and, you know, hey, can I help you? Thinking, you know, I forget that I'm now not 20. So, um, I think I, I still think I know everything. And so I'm like, oh, I, I could help. Oh, I think we got it. I'm like, okay. So then a few minutes later, actually, young man, could you help us? Young man, I said, you gotta love that, right? Oh yeah. Yes, I am. Thank you very much. And, uh, so I get on, sure enough, I can't do anything either. I, I can't solve their problem. So, but then we strike up a conversation and another person had talked to them and I overheard what was going on in their life, selling their house and moving away and that. So we get into kind of this conversation and I realize, okay, here's a couple and it came out that, you know, married 50 years, left whatever church influence they had, uh, you know, kind of in their college days, have never been back know nothing about the gospel. He had this sort of conception of what church is and how terrible it is and what a bunch of hypocrites we all are. And and uh, we, we all have our hypocritical moments. Let's be honest about that, right? And so I just thought, who's going to share Jesus with this couple? Like, they may live another 10 or 15 years and then that's over. Is someone going to share Jesus with them? I hope somebody should... Oh, I'm sitting here. <laughs> right? I thought, well, I'm not very good at this. But we were able to kind of steer the conversation and I invited them to consider it. And they, they might be sitting in this room right now because I did invite them here. I should have thought about that before I launched into the story. You guys, if you are here, I don't even know your names, but I apologize. But I care about you. It's compassion that compels us. It's compassion that compels us. We want people to know Jesus because we don't want them to suffer. So judgment should disturb us, but compassion should compel us because we talk about being fully alive. We say the life in Christ is like that tree. 
roots deep into Jesus, it's trunk standing strong, leaves that, that are a blessing to the world around us. That's what we that's what we want to talk about. And we make mistakes, none of us are perfect. But that's the life we're invited to. Why wouldn't we want to invite others to that life? And if we're not experiencing that life, we need to figure out why aren't I experiencing that life? So you're a ready messenger if judgment disturbs you and compassion compels you and repentance delights you. Repentance delights you. You know, we don't hear anything from Daniel after the king returns to sanity, but verse 27 reveals Daniel's attitude. Right? He's pleading with the king to repent. So we know that Daniel would be delighted if the king would turn it around. Come on, king. Come on. Just leave your wickedness. Right? Accept my advice. Stop sinning. Uh, Be merciful to the poor. If the most difficult person in your life repented and, and turned to faith in Christ, would you be delighted? Would you be glad about that? Or would you be a little disappointed that they didn't suffer at least a little more? Like, oh, come on, right? I hope it's the first, because that's the heart of Jesus the Savior. And when you put these three things together, right, regarding judgment and compassion compelling you and so on, repentance delighting you, when you do that, when you put those things together, you're on your way to making the good news good news instead of bad news. Not And not everyone does that. Like we said, when the message is all about judgment and punishment, it, it, it doesn't come across well. It's the wrong message. If it's about rules and religion and sin and failure, man, all we've done is bring condemnation. Our job is not to condemn, but to invite them from where they are to repentance and to follow Jesus. It's all of the above. Because the good news really is good. That yes, we all sin. And we're separated from God as a result. But God has created us out of a love and it is a desire to be in a relationship with us. And our sin has separated us from them. And the invitation is to be in a relationship, to be reconciled with God by faith in Jesus Christ. God found a way when he sent Jesus to the cross. We sang about it this morning. Best of all, God's given you the free will to choose whether you'll submit your life to him, bow down before him, or whether you'll say, I'll do this on my own. Thank you very much. I got this. It's our choice. It's our free will. To decide that. And that's what you must decide too. So. Are you humbly submitted to God? And if so, are you a a willing and, and ready messenger? Disturbed by judgment. Compelled by compassion. Delighted by repentance. Let's pray together. God, we... Some of these words we don't like. Uh, I don't like very much. Judgment, repentance, and kind of these hard things. And yet, when we understand what you're inviting us to, they're good words. And your message is good news. And God, you don't, you don't invite us to dwell on our failures. You invite us to, to dwell on your amazing grace. Your saving, your saving work for us. And Lord, we recognize that, that we can easily get mired up in in anger or, or, or pride or jealousy or, or, or things that kind of create a distance and distance and distance from you. But God, you're inviting us to humble ourselves before you. And then with that humility to be able to share the amazing love of Jesus with the people around us. God, we can't do it on our own. 
And we wouldn't want to. And so we just invite you, ask you to help us do that. I pray even this week that we would be messengers of good, good news to the people around us just because of what you're doing in our lives in our own simple way. We thank you for your amazing, amazing love for us. You're good. In your name we pray. Amen.